Hello and welcome to the One with Shabat, a podcast about Sikh history, philosophy, and culture, hosted by Shabat Singh and produced by me, Rishwajit Singh. In this episode, Shabat interviews Sony Singh, who is a trumpet and tool player, singer, songwriter, and a social justice educator. He is also the original member of Fred Barat, a band out of Brooklyn, New York. They talk about Sony's experience with racism growing up, learning to play tabla and harmonium as a young Sikh kid, finding ska music. discovering and attending social justice movements and more all of which go into his work as a musician and an educator today his first single as a solo artist mitre pyare nu comes out on august 18 before we begin if you appreciate the work shabad and i do to bring you the show and highlight the incredible work people in the community are doing consider supporting the show on patreon we invest all money on consistently getting you the show and increasing its quality go to patreon.com/theonepodcast that's p a t r e o n .com/thoneypodcast all right we'll begin with a message from sony hey this is sony i want to say that i am truly inspired by the black lives matter movement and the uprising and rebellion and street protest uh, that we're seeing all over the country uh, and all over the world right now uh, denouncing racist policing denouncing white supremacy denouncing systemic racism uh, that have that has seeped into all aspects of our society here in the United States and in so many parts of the world for decade after decade after decade after decade um enough is enough um as a sick this issue is just so crucial to to who we are right being being a people who were born out of struggle against caste apartheid against sexism against religious intolerance clearly the struggle against white supremacy is is a, a sick mandate as well so i see this movement as one uh that sick should be at the forefront of and i've been really encouraged but i've been seeing a, a lot of calls uh calls for solidarity from sikhs and other punjabis as well um and and really an opportunity to reflect internally on the anti-black racism which seeps into our own communities into our own families into our own psyche right this is stuff that we've most of us who are of south asian descent and most of us six have really grown up with a whole lot of anti-black racism in our families anti-black stereotypes we've learned growing up and so this is really a moment to reflect to unlearn and to resist Sunny, thank you so much uh for being on the one. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh look forward to the discussion. All right. Um so if you could uh start with just telling us as, you know, as a musician now and as somebody who um music has played a, a you know, large role in your life, if you could tell us um how that that musical life evolved. um from your early years uh to this day uh now yeah for sure so i'd say like many uh sick folks in our community uh, my first musical outlet and probably the way i was first even exposed to music was through kirtan uh both at sick camps that i went to as a kid as well as uh in the gurdwara um my mom uh likes to tell me a story about how when i was like a tiny tiny kid uh not much bigger than an infant uh I'd be just sort of mesmerized by the kirtan at gurdwara and particularly the tabla player 
and would sort of be banging on my knees uh, trying to mimic <laughs> what the tabla player was doing. Um, unfortunately, if I try to play tabla now, it pretty much amounts to the skill level of banging on my knees because tabla, <laughs> tabla is a pretty deep instrument that I, I played a little bit uh, as a kid, but not with any with any skill. So I sort of got exposed through through music uh, via Kirtan, um, again, like many in our community, and uh, and, and loved it, like the melody and the and the rhythmic aspects uh, really resonated with me, and and obviously the 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 lyrical content and the the poetry of of Gurbani um, really resonated as well. Um, but I didn't have a musical family. Uh, I was always the only musician in my family, and uh, so I didn't get necessarily serious about Kirtan or serious about the sort of musical aspects of it. But you know, got certainly got props uh, to be quote unquote sort of a good a good <laughs> sick good sick boy. You know, um, and I wasn't only playing tabla. I was singing and playing vaja as well, which I think was a little bit more rare for the boys of my mm-hmm. generation who usually just gravitated uh, towards tabla. Um, so that was sort of my first my first musical voice in a sense, uh, though not one that I ever got super serious about. And then uh, fast forward to the age of nine, uh, I started playing trumpet in school band. Um, and not for any special reason other than most kids in my school joined band or orchestra or choir. Um, and I remember asking my band director if I could play saxophone and she said your hands look a little too small for saxophone and so I picked the other shiny instrument uh, which was <laughs> trumpet and uh, and that was that and I and you know 30 years later it's it's kind of a major musical outlet for me and the the heart of what I what I do and what I play um, so that was a, a nice coincidence that that worked out with uh, with the trumpet the arbitrary yeah. the arbitrary choice um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'd say I got I, I got much deeper into music um, and much more serious about being a musician in high school. Um, I had a great band director in high school and was mostly playing sort of European classical music as well as marching band. Uh, we had a we had like a two hundred person marching band in high school. Um, played at all the football games, which was. Uh, fascinating experience but I got I got pretty deep into it and uh, really I think started finding my voice particularly as a trumpet player and I think when I was 15 or 16 uh, this is uh, the late 90s um, mid to late 90s uh, when I was 15 or 16 uh, I got turned on to uh, ska music and that that sort of allowed me to hear uh, horns in a whole other way, as well as music in a whole other way. It really, it really resonated with me. Um, the, the rhythm of it, the, the, the sound of trumpets and trombones and saxophones playing in a very different way than I was accustomed mm-hmm. to playing, uh, to playing uh, my wind instrument. Um, and uh, so I used to go to shows every week uh, at this small club in, in Phoenix, Arizona, where there was a pretty lively uh, sort of subculture of, of ska kids and punk kids and it was a very welcoming scene um, and the more I learned about uh, the more I learned about the history of ska music um, migrating from Jamaica to England to the to the US to the rest of the world uh, it, it really resonated more and more the the politics of inclusion anti-racism uh, people from different backgrounds coming together uh, to to make this sort of joyful dance music. It was something that I got pretty heavy into for, for a long time. And the first band I ever started uh, was my freshman year of college at University of Arizona. And it was called Turban Jones. And it was a ska band. Huh. That, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense listening to um, 
music that you 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 did later that 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 ska influence uh definitely makes a lot of sense yeah Um, yeah it it i mean i still i still love ska but it's not the only thing i listen to anymore (laughs) Um, it's it's a very it's a small minority of what i listen to now but for i'd say from like age 16 to 20 i was just deep like heavy into ska and reggae and then became very snobby about it too you know I was only, totally. only listen to like the traditional stuff you know um the ska punk stuff used to really bother me i've become much more open-minded now but uh you know when uh when when i was young i, I got a little a little fundamentalist about my about my <laughs> ska tastes it's like this is you not know. ska this is ska influenced music this is not ska <laughs> who amongst us hasn't got turned into like a, a music genre you know uh, authoritarian at some time in our high school years, you know, exactly. like it's like a right passage. I think it's a part, yeah, it's a part of identity <laughs> development and, uh, and, and this idea of being a part of like an underground scene, I think really resonated mm-hmm. with me too. And I, I think there was definitely something about the connection of being not in the mainstream was in a way sort of embracing my otherness, uh, because mm-hmm. I'd always been excluded, I'd always been bullied, I'd never really seen my experience reflected in the mainstream at all, obviously, uh, which I'm sure you can relate. And, sure. and then I found this scene that sort of celebrated uh, celebrated being underground, right? Celebrated not being mainstream. Um, and so, again, led to some simplistic ideas about, quote-unquote, selling out in mainstream music. Right, and, right. You know, I was closed off to a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have been closed off to, but I think... You know, it's an important part of uh, it was it was an important part of my growing up and finding finding my own voice and identity. Well, you kind of end up dis- you kind of end up um, uh, disputing with that. Even you, you, I feel like maturity, I guess, is like you end up dealing with that sort of snobbiness and going, "Oh, well, I need to actually chill out," and that's like a part of the. But you know, if you hadn't have been if you hadn't been uptight in the first place, you wouldn't have had the ability to kind of grow through it and, and be a more nuanced, uh, you know, appreciator of horns. Indeed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, so you, you're, I, I think, you know, musically speaking, uh, Red Barat is, is your, um, is maybe what you're best known for. Um, And, and it sounds to me uh, that, or, or first of all, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, Red Barat and the work that you you did there, the music that you made there, um, yeah, if you could if you could just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, totally. So I've been uh, a member of Red Barat since the band's inception in two thousand eight. Uh, so that makes me feel very old because that <laughs> is over 10 years ago. Oh, um, and so my friend and uh, fellow New York musician uh, named, also named Sonny, Sonny Jane, uh, had this idea uh, that really uh, stemmed from the brass band tradition in Punjab and other parts of South Asia uh, who, that play at, at Baraths, um, at mm-hmm. weddings. Um, you know, this sort of festive, joyful cacophony of sounds of lots going on and uh, sort of uh, a, a lot of celebration and a lot of craziness. Uh, he had this idea of putting together a band uh, primarily of horns and drums uh, where he'd played dole um, here in, in New York. And so uh, I was one of the people that he called to, to uh, pull this together in, in 2008. And, you know, from the get-go, was just really drawn to, uh, drawn to the sound um, and drawn to the vibe that we were sort of creating uh, creating together uh, that really did center 
that did center joy, but uh, not in a not in an uncritical way, right? Um, there's mm. I think there's a lot of depth to the music as well, but uh, I think through the process. You know, before before I was doing Red Barat, I was a part of this band that I that I co-founded called Outer National. Um, that uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine called us a quote-unquote world music Rage Against the Machine, which you know Sweet. that has its the whole idea of world music. Certainly, we can unpack and has its problems, sure. but it gives you it gives you a sense of the vibe. The politics were very front and center, um, almost in a sort of didactic kind of way which definitely has its place in music, I think. And I think Rage mm-hmm. Against the Machine is a, is a great example of that. Um, yeah. And so when, when, uh, when Red Barat started, I was like, ah, should I be spending my time doing, doing all this music that feels much less political? And I think through the process, I realized just the, how important joy is to our movements and to our survival as, as oppressed people. Um, Red Barath uh, has always been a very multiracial band, people from lots of different backgrounds, a lot of different musical styles coming together. Um, and I think just by our very nature of, of being on stage, playing in the way that we do, improvising in the way that we do with the urgency uh, that we, uh, with, sort of through which we do it, um, I think uh, a lot is communicated um, that mm-hmm. that our that our movements and and our people uh, need, um, and of course I'm all for political analysis and uh, more overt politics and music too. And some of our lyrics definitely have uh, have a very strong message to them. Uh, but the overall vibe of Red Baroth is not like a hit you over the head with sure. uh, with lefty radical politics uh, kind of vibe. It's more like we're going to make you feel something. Uh, and then, and then maybe you'll dig a, dig a little deeper to see what what I might be singing, and uh, maybe you'll find a translation online or something if right. you don't, if you don't speak uh, Punjabi or whatever language I happen to be singing in, and uh, and and realize what what we're talking about. And and in some ways, I think that's that's more the role of a musician, you know, at least mm-hmm. through through uh, through our music as musicians. I think it's a little bit more effective to sort of pull people in based on the based on the feeling and the sound and the rhythm. Uh, rather than hitting them over the head with uh, sure. with the lyrics, you know. Um, though Rage did just... that really well. Rage hit hit us over the head really well yeah. with the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. So it can yeah, be absolutely. it can be done in a in a very artistic way. But uh, I don't I don't know that that's my role as a musician. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think a little bit of. I was just listening to a like an audio documentary about Pete Seeger the other day. The famous, uh, you know, kind of, you know, left leftist kind of labor you know folk singer uh, for folks who don't know and um and you know and and i i was surprised actually to listen to like you know a lot of his music was you know of course he you know he's famous for making you know doing you know we shall overcome and and these really you know kind of important um you know kind of chants and fight fight songs if you will for 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 the left and for workers and um, but he also had a lot of really beautiful just like songs you know that that uh were not over hit you over the head either so i I, you know it all uh um may a thousand flowers bloom right like there's all different kinds of uh approaches um and and so um you're still red barat is is still active yeah you're still a member yep yeah we've recorded i think four studio albums to date we just put out uh our most recent album uh last year called sound the people um, which I think in some ways is our most explicitly 
sort of political album. Um, there's some some guest artists on there who really bring some great vocals. There's a tune of mine that's inspired by uh, the Gather Party and the sort of history of Punjabi-Mexican interaction um, in, in California. Uh, it's called Gather Machao. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going strong. We're on tour uh, a bunch this, this summer. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it continues to be a really uh, central and, and uh, exciting part of my life. But you're, you're kind of deep in the process right now of recording your own uh, album, is that correct? I am, yeah. It's sort of a, a long time coming, um, and in some ways it's kind of a full circle back to where this conversation began, sure. which is uh, my sort of uh, initial musical outlet as Kirtan. You know, I've never, I've never really revisited it as, a, as an adult and as a so-called professional musician, and I put, I put all that in big quotes because I don't really know what it means, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm a professional anything, but uh, I, do, I do my best. <laughs> God forbid. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I had this idea in the fall and winter, you know, we're living in pretty troubling times, uh, to say the least. And, um, and yeah, this, this fall and winter, I just started kind of revisiting. I mean, Gurbani has continued to play a role in my life, but I started revisiting it from this uh, sort of musical angle and just kind of jamming out in my room uh, with different you know I have a harmonium at home that I can play very basic stuff on and just started started writing melodies that were uh that seemed to to fit the vibe of uh what I was feeling and and some of the the shabads that were uh sort of speaking to me um mm -hmm. and I started making these little sort of graph Instagram videos. I don't know how it's an app called acapella. And if you sort of make a grid of uh, a multi-track recording, basically of myself, uh, you know, singing and then singing harmonies, playing trumpet and then playing trumpet harmonies and then playing dole and then playing bongos and then playing harmonium and sort of layering it all together in a little, a little grid. And I just started putting them out just little one minute clips of, of these, uh, these ideas, many of them based on Kirtan, based on Gurbani, not all of them. Um, and uh, yeah, and that sort of uh, became the concept for like, wait a second, maybe I need to actually record this stuff properly. Um, maybe mm. I need to get in the studio and actually uh, and actually make a record because it seems like uh, this is uh, an interesting contribution that I could make uh, right now musically and politically because I think uh, when we look at Gurbani, there's a lot of deeply uh, lessons that are pretty deep in terms of our current political situation yeah. as well. Um, and, uh, and I have a, uh, an old friend, a good friend and mentor in LA named Will Dog Abers, who's uh, the founder of the band Ozo Motley, uh, one of the founders of the band Ozo Motley. He plays bass in that band. Um, they're a three-time Grammy-winning band, a band that totally blew my mind when I was, uh -huh. uh, you know, I think I first started listening to them when I was 17 years old. Um, and they've always been one of my favorite bands. And he was really excited about these little videos I was making. So I was chatting with him about it and uh, I asked him if he wants to produce it, like produce a proper recording. And he was like, hell yes, I do. Um, and awesome. yeah, and so we've had, we've done two sessions out in LA. I live in New York, obviously, but so I've been spending some time in LA uh, with him working out there. 
Um, I'd say we're maybe halfway halfway there in the recording process right now. Um, so he's contributing a lot of ideas in terms of the orchestration of the songs, what instruments, because, you know, the demos that I made are just me playing dole, trumpet, harmonium, vocals, just sort of limited by what I do. And so now he's sort of helping to shape what the, what the sonic palette is, you know, what other instruments do we need. Uh, and through the process, it's kind of becoming clear that uh, this is going to be a bigger undertaking than I initially right. thought, and we're going to make a full a full album, um, and probably you'll be hearing from me uh, with the crowdfunding campaign this this summer because obviously it costs a lot of money to to make a make an album without a record label, and then hopefully uh, we'll be re- planning to release it uh, early next year in 2020. Ah, it's really exciting. I can't. I if if folks haven't heard um, these these little clips. Um, you can follow Sonny at Brooklyn Sing. It's Brooklyn Sing, right? Brooklyn yeah, Sing Brooklyn is Sing. on. It's a little confusing. Brooklyn Swing, Sing is my. I almost said Brooklyn Swing. That would be a whole <laughs> whole other thing. Um, <laughs> Brooklyn Sing is my Twitter, and then Brooklyn Vala, uh, Brooklyn W A L A is my Instagram. Yeah, and, and and these clips are they're gorgeous. I I love them. Um, Thank I you. started watching them when you started. Um, it's been you you've been creating them for some time now, and I. Uh, I really love them. I really appreciate it. So like it's the acapella, like the format too allows it to be just like so sort of, I mean, it's not simple because you're obviously layering a lot of different sounds and, and, and whatnot, but just like that it's not amplified or, or <clears throat> in any way, it's just like your, these, these sort of acoustic sounds like, yeah. And your face, it's It's awesome. Man. I love if it. you want to see eight or nine, uh, sunny faces that's the that's the way to do it yeah totally totally analog uh and uh layers layers of 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 harmony um yeah so i think on the on the record ultimately most likely at the end of the day i think you know probably 60 to 70 percent of it'll be you know the lyrical content will be coming from gurbani um Mm. and then a little bit more will be coming from sufi poetry and then a little bit more will be coming from from other stuff both my own stuff as well as um uh, I, I, I will probably be recording that Gunner Movement song that I was telling you about for this album yeah. in a different in a different way as well. So the that that maybe is a good segue to talking about um, politics and and organizing. Um, you know, it sounds it's, and it sounds to me like the this that your music and political life have been intersecting ever since you um, found the that kind of ska uh, scene. Um, so is it, do you, how, how did your political, um, ideas, uh, and, and act, act, or act involvement, um, evolve, um, over time? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a long story that I'll try to, sure. that I'll try to tell in a, in a quicker way. But, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, as the child of immigrants, uh, like many of us and, um, you know, didn't happen to have parents that thought it was a good idea to be an activist or to be super politically engaged. Um, uh, my parents were, especially when I was growing up, were more kind of just like a work hard, you can do whatever you want kind of situation. If anyone, mm-hmm. if anyone bothers you, bullies you, just ignore them. That was sort of the, the messaging that I got from them. And if they're listening right now, no disrespect. I appreciate everything you did. I love y'all. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, that I, I feel like that mentality didn't really reflect 
what I needed, right? And and what uh, I think what the we collectively need um, in terms mm. of we being uh, six growing up in this country or in the diaspora or even in India or marginalized or oppressed people in any other way, um, sort of working hard and ignoring, uh, ignoring outside uh, challenges, I, I feel like is is very limiting. Um, it might it might work for some folks in some ways, but it certainly wasn't working for me. I, I felt pretty terrible about myself as a kid growing up um, with the sort of the daily harassment. Um, yeah. In Charlotte, North Carolina, where we were living, there was literally no other sick boys who were turbans in the city besides me and my brother. Um, wow. So uh, really a deep feeling of isolation growing up. Um, and you know, a uh, very black and white city and sort of feeling uh, outside of, of both of those, uh, both of those groups. Um, and, you know, when uh, then we moved to Arizona when I was 11, and in terms of the, the sort of racial and political landscape and uh, racism, that was really no better and maybe maybe worse yeah. in some ways, right? Because um, Phoenix is a really right wing place in, in yeah. many ways. But there was a bigger sick community there which was very helpful for me um, because I found some connection, I found some solidarity, I found folks that were having similar experiences of me. So that was that was really, really helpful. Started going to sick camps as well. Um, but I'm trying to get to my, my political story here. I guess it's all kind of a part of it. Um, sure, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I would say I would characterize my childhood of being like a pretty, uh, you know, people would always consider me very shy, uh, I, I would say I was very insecure, um, and I think largely this stuff was was due to, you know, the racism that I was experiencing on a on a daily basis. And when I was sixteen, uh, I had the sort of very like dumb luck of going to this camp that was called Anytown, um, and it was a camp for high school students that brought together students from really all, like literally all walks of life. It was really quite a broad uh, range of students that came together uh, and engaged in a week of sort of like intensive workshops, discussions, um, et cetera, uh, related to sort of social justice issues. You know, we would talk about racism, mm -hmm. we would talk about sexism, we would talk about gang violence, we'd talk about all these sorts of things in a very, very supportive and loving environment. And it, I think it was one of the first times where I felt like truly seen for, for who I was, right? So I would hear other students' experiences. And then I was like sharing the stuff that I was dealing with really for the first time in kind of a public uh, forum. You know, I didn't really talk to my parents about it. I didn't even talk to my brother about it who was dealing with the same stuff. But for whatever reason, I, I was very inward until that experience at 16. Um, and so after that experience, it was deeply transformative. I kind of left there being like, this is my mission now, you know, fighting yeah. racism, fighting sexism, um, fighting all forms of oppression is, is kind of like what I'm here to do. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I guess I, I, that was that was the beginning. Uh, and, uh, and, and since that was sort of a, a facilitated educational context, that became one of the ways that I stayed active, right? Like I, I came back on staff for that camp and was facilitating oh, these wow. discussions myself. When I started college, I co-founded a student organization um, in which we were going into dorms and facilitating anti-racism workshops. Um, mm -hmm. I was doing sort of like uh, education around sexual assault and rape with men on campus. Um, you know, so facilitation, um, holding space for conversation uh, 
and and deep dialogue about these issues has always been something that has been uh, quite central in, in my life and my work. And it wasn't until I was probably 2021 20, when I realized that could actually be something that I could partially make a living doing, right? It didn't, right. Even, it didn't even occur to me that, that that's something that uh, people can do. Again, I'll use it in quotes, quote unquote, professionally. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, fortunately, that, that was the case. And um, I ended up going to a graduate program called Social Justice Education at UMass Amherst, where I got to really dig into the art of popular education, education for, for liberation. Um, and, uh, and that's work that I still do to this day. Um, so that's kind of like one thread of my political story, particularly focusing on the the popular education side of things. Um, there's there's many other many other threads uh, to how I got politicized. I think, and just one other thing I'll say is that uh, I think uh, some of the forces that were happening in in the '90s uh, deeply influenced me, uh, including the anti-WTO movement and protests right. in Seattle in '99. I very much consider myself a child of that generation, and I got deeply involved in sort of the anti-sweatshop movement and was active in my. Uh, local uh, campuses, uh, Students Against Sweatshops chapter. Um, so, you know, fighting against uh, the exploitation of workers in the United States and around the world uh, has always been, not always, but since I was in college has been a, a, a passion of mine. Um, and sort of just seeing our struggles here in the United States and, and our privileges here in the United States as intertwined with uh, people all over the world, right? And I think that was something yeah. that was so crucial about that moment politically um, on campuses, but just among people in the United States uh, who are active in the sort of anti-globalization movement um, and the anti-sweatshop movement, as was we really saw our destinies as intertwined uh, with those of the global South. And sometimes I feel like that kind of politic and analysis is, is, is uh, not as uh, not as central as it should be in, in some of the movements that are, that are uh, that are popular in the United States today. I mean, in some ways they are, in some ways, in some ways they aren't, but that sort of internationalism uh, is something that's really, really important to me and I think really important for our survival as humanity and particularly our survival as, as uh, oppressed people. I think that's a, yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the, in just the, you know, the bit that I've been exposed to, to, to I'd say that world or, or that uh, approach to politics, it's like um, your anti-racism, I, I sort, sort of think, think about it as like if your anti-racism isn't also grounded in a good, you know, critique of, you know, finance capital and, and, and capitalism in general and exploitation of workers, you're sort of like rowing with one oar. Like, yes. you, does that make sense? Like, yeah. And, um, and I think that a lot of, it's like, I think what you're saying is totally right on that a lot of the time, what we conceive of as social issues are often divorced from their material or, you know, financial, um, underpin, you know, kind of the undergirding of our entire society, which is run on, you know, which is capitalist, which is, you know, which is about exploitation of workers and yeah. upward flow of wealth and absolutely and that and that's why i think in college like the idea of being a radical really resonated with me right like in the truest sense i was studying sociology i was getting involved in the anti-sweatshop movement i was doing all this anti-racism and anti-sexism work 
And, uh, and this, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of really great professors that had me thinking critically as well and was exposed to a lot of, uh, a lot of literature that expanded my mind uh, as well. But the, the true sense of what it means to be a radical is to get to the root, right? To the root of yeah. social problems. Um, and so that's, that's how I've always thought about uh, my politics, at least since I was in college, right? That we have to get to the, to the root of social problems and address them at their fundamental level. And that doesn't mean that the only thing worth doing is mass upheaval and revolution, like that it's not also worthwhile to make things better in the meantime. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like if we, if we want to think about uh, getting to the root of social problems and dismantling uh, systems that are rotten to their core, I don't think we have to go any farther than sick history and, and uh, you know, the, the story of our gurus who very much established this, uh, this faith uh, and this this way of life to overthrow injustice and tyranny, right? So, um, sort of the more the more I learned about Sikhi, uh, the more I realized how much it resonated with uh, with uh, my politics, right? Um, mm. And my politics of being radical and uh, and a revolutionary. And you know, I think the word radical is it has been so sort of. Uh, corrupted at this point um yeah. that it's that it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky to to navigate how to how to use it in certain circles anymore because people sort of inherently think of uh radicalization quote unquote as as something right. really negative as something about just being an extremist or being a fundamentalist and that's i think that's very far from from uh what 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 it actually means at its core right which is getting to the root of things um and changing systems fundamentally and doing away with systems fundamentally if if there's really nothing worth redeeming in them yeah absolutely i think that the we're very pro using the word radical on this podcast in the good way Excellent. Uh, you know, <laughs> being a being a you know one example of uh people who are i, I think using it correctly and um yes i i think that um, I think that sometimes too to understand radical is is it's good to talk about the concept of reactionary, which I think is the sort of the way that, like, um, well, the way that we govern, the way that especially in the U.S. context, you know, we have a massive prison system that is, you know, we have the most incarcerated people in the world. Um, we have, you know, which which says which speaks to a system where as opposed to radically examining why crime occurs or and I'm just using this as an example for rhetoric for our for our listeners um, but like you know we have this massive uh, imprisoned population who are there ostensibly to help society somehow uh, rid bad people from their ranks um, and that that is like a pure reactionary response to what are deeply social and economic problems that, you know, you know, of, of you know, po people in poverty, people who are, you know, coming up against institutional racism and sexism, et cetera, who, um, you know, find themselves beset on all sides by just crushing gears of, of, of capital and, and um just various forms of oppression and and you know people oh they oh, people do crimes it turns out when uh they have you know very limited options or they live in a society that tells them to perpetually climb upwards on the backs of others and but doesn't give them any access to the to the system the legal system of doing that you know in, in the corporate world so they go to the 
the black market of uh, exploitation or whatever, where, whatever it is that people have to turn to 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 eat or um, you know to to fulfill that that imperative of uh, of up, you know perceived upward mobility. Um, and, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the society, society's response is to lock people up in jail. And and, uh, you know, so as radicals, we would go, well, why? Well, why aren't we just dealing with the underlying problem of why these people are desperate and violent and angry or whatever the situations that they're being put into? Why, why aren't we just fixing those situations as opposed to just locking people up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like no other example is more clear than the way that our country deals with uh, addiction, right? Um, oh, and deals yeah, yeah. with drug use, um, like as a criminal issue rather than a public health issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I mean, I think so much of it comes back to uh, the profit motive behind all these systems, right? Um, so sure. I think as long as uh, people are, you know, big corporations are, are making money on prisons, we will have prisons, you know? Um, as long as uh, insurance companies and pharmaceuticals are sort of profiteering off of life and death for people, um, then uh, we're not going to have uh, a just healthcare system, right? Um, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's disgusting, really. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, people and I was talking about this with my dad last night. Like, even people who are middle class in this country um, are, you know, if they have a lapse in insurance or or their insurance sucks, um, you get one major, you know, injury or whatever, and you could you could be a you know reasonably comfortable middle class person and all of a sudden be, you know, broke or you know, just in deep debt and and, 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 and you know, um, and anyway, but. But, you know, no, I, I think, think that these are things that, that I like to bring up on the show and to talk about in, in the sick context because, and like you alluded to before, it's like, you know, to me, not that we want to like overlay sick philosophy or history onto our own politics in some kind of a simplistic way, but understanding the sort of the motivations that the gurus you know, are compelling us towards in terms of the way that we treat others, the way that we build institutions and, 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 and organize ourselves in society seem to be very counter to the way that we currently do that, you know, in, in most of the world context. So I wonder, I wonder if you can reflect on, um, do, you know, a little bit more about that about maybe that kind of uh, that idea of your the relationship between um, you know your approach or your you know your relationship with with Sikhi and with Gurbani and and with your political yeah um, approach yeah for sure um, I don't know if you or or the folks listening uh, used to read the the Lungerhall blog uh, yeah. but that was a that was a really uh, cool space for for many years where I think we tried to flush out a lot of these ideas and that's definitely a, a, a big part of how I saw my my reason for for writing on there uh, and, and sort of working out ideas and and, and feelings and, and beliefs that I had uh, that really sort of speak directly to this conversation that we're having around uh, sort of our our current society current struggles both within the sick community as well as just in our society at, at large in the United States and beyond, and and what can we learn from Sikh philosophy? What can we learn from Gurbani? What can we learn about 
uh, you know, what can we learn from Sikh history? Like, what does that have to teach us about uh, how we might want to approach these situations we find ourselves in now? Um, and for me, the more the more I've learned, uh, the more I've read, uh, the more Sikh scholars that I've that I've talked to and learned from, uh, the more connection I see uh, between. Uh, a very uh, radical social justice agenda, a very inclusive social justice agenda uh, driven by by love uh, and driven by devotion um, you know the, that that is that is the sick way right um, I, yeah. I don't though I, though I agree with you that there's huge reactionary elements in the sick community, a lot of really oppressive behaviors and uh, uh, and policies and ways of life even that get justified uh, through Sikhi. Um, I think yeah. a lot of, ju- unfortunately, you know, in that way, like Sikhs are no different than any other religion that use, right. there's always going to be those opportunists, primarily uh, men um, who who want to use, uh, you know, religion as a way to, to, you know, build power and status for themselves on the backs of yeah. others. Um, or perpetuate any kind of sort of uh, dogmatic and narrow-minded uh, ideologies, you know, be it homophobia, yeah. be it misogyny, uh, be it you know Islamophobia, be it anti-black racism. I mean, I've heard I've heard all those things justified by yeah. Sikhi, and to me, it's just dishonest, right? Like you look at what our gurus were about, you look at uh, the message that is in Gurbani across the board. It's just like a a flat out contradiction to to what Sikhi is about. It's a flat out contradiction to why Sikhi exists in the first place, right? Um, wow. To dismantle the caste system, right? Not 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 only to to help uh, Dalits and lower caste people, but to tear down the system that is that is oppressing them, right? Um, not only to to help women, but to but to tear down patriarchy and misogyny, the systems that are are oppressing uh, women, right? Um, so I, I think to me, those lessons are so clear, uh, and, and deeply inspiring for me. Um, so, you know, I am always excited to have this conversation and engage in these debates with, with yeah. other six, cause I, I don't think anyone can really argue, like I've never heard a sick say, or, or I've never heard a sick, even one who sees the world really differently than me, argue with this idea of equality and oneness, right? Like you can't, right. you can't really argue with that. There's like basic fundamentals. You can't really argue with the idea that uh, the birth of Sikhi was a revolution, a spiritual mm-hmm. and a political revolution, right? So th- these are really powerful uh, tools we have in our Sikhi toolbox and totally. uh, in our history and. Uh, I think really compelling organizing tools and you know I have worked a little bit in the Sikh community for a couple of years I was an organizer at the Sikh coalition um, from I believe like 2008 to 2010 I was a community organizer there and you know it was really it, it was a really humbling my Punjabi is terrible so I was a, kind of a crappy organizer in that sense because I, I couldn't talk to a large segment of the community right. that I was purporting to organize but I ended up, uh, but I, you know, linguistically, but based on my linguistic limitations as well as just sort of what was needed at the time, I ended up gravitating towards uh, youth organizing. Um, yeah. And so these were conversations I was having with with sick youth on a daily basis in in Richmond Hill, and it's just it was, it was fascinating to sort of like get the sense of the narratives that they're being told versus my understanding of of our history and philosophy and 
and and struggle and discuss and try to and try to grow together um towards this path uh, uh, of liberation, right? Like, I really do think that's what Sikhi is about. Um, I, you know, sometimes I feel like it's a, it's a shame Sikhi became a religion with a capital R, um, and I know yeah. that, that's maybe a, a controversial thing to say in some ways, but um, when you look at the core of Sikh philosophy, like, it's all about tearing down these barriers, right? Tearing down ideas of dogma and rigidity and blind ritual, and we've reproduced so many of those things ourselves, oh, right? Um, I don't want to say it's human nature to, to create those things. I don't think it is. But I think in hierarchical, hierarchical oppressive, profit-driven societies, these things uh, are needed, right? Hierarchies well, and divisions, are like that, yeah. that's required to uphold the status quo. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's just like you say. It's that, you know, in, in the, the broader structure in which people are operating... I think compels people or, or mo- you know, it, it, it is what provides the motivations for people. And those who are, um, whose, whose motivations are in line with the broader structure will naturally rise uh, or will naturally sort of their voices might be heard most because they are able to navigate sort of most effectively in this, this broader structure of exploitation of dominance of patriarchy etc and so it's like only natural i don't you know i don't think that six six are 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 you know we're not special in in either direction we're not bad we're not good we're we're human beings who are you know existing in this much larger structure that compels certain types of you know behaviors and ideas and and i think that you know it's that's why i think it's really important to talk about it's you know it's not to say like six should be leftists or whatever it's like it's to say let's as we as six have done throughout our history examine ideas from you know all of the cultures that surround us and this the context in which we exist there's a great episode that we just did recently with um Louis Fennec, who is uh, who is a professor up in Toronto, who does these great, he's done a great books about the court of Gugobin Singh, and you know what he talks about is that the gurus that the that Gugobin Singh, you know, he built this court of like poets and and philosophers and writers and, and and just every kind of discipline that you could have at that time, political thinkers, and. Primarily, he said that what they what that court produced and the scribes produced were copies of the City Guru Granth Sahib to be disseminated. But after that, they produced massive amounts of 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 Punjabi or vernacular translations of all different kinds of like, you know, political, spiritual, philosophical, scientific texts or what, you know, and then sick kind of commentaries upon those different texts. And disseminated that and it's like and it was about contextualizing and it was about like you know taking or even context like you know you'd have poets that would write about specific passages or aspects of the city Guru Granth Sahib in the six this early 18th century because obviously you know city Guru Granth Sahib had been compiled in the mid 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 17th century so it's like there was this active intellectual you know um, progression 
that was taking all of the ideas and all of the different from around it and going, okay, what can we use here for our purposes? And I think that I think that six like would be so, you know, I, I listened to what you're talking about and sort of your, it was so like, um, and, and, I, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about this too, but, but it's so, um, you know, it, 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 it's a powerful and a very like healing thing to find solidarity, like to arrive in a place where others, you, you, others accept you for who you are and who, who, whose fundamental sort of approach to existence in relation to others is justice. And, and then from there you can do wonderful and amazing things because you don't feel like, you know, as long as you're being respectful of others and, and whatnot, like you, you have nothing to fear in terms of being judged or in terms of being ostracized or whatever for, for, for whoever you are. Anyway, I think that it's very, I think that Sikhs could, could, in accessing these political ideas, use it, like you said, an organizing toolkit. You know, we, I think the, the left has a lot to learn from six. And I think that six could ha have a lot that we could learn from the left and, and that we could use for our own purposes in terms of how we organize ourselves and, and deal with issues in this community. But I, I wonder if you have any reflections on that in terms of like, um, you know, how, how you could, how you might conceive six, uh, engaging with, um, we want to call it, you know, solidarity politics, uh, or, or you know, kind of left politics or analysis, and 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 the issues that that, like you said, like it's not just six, but there are minority community minority communities that that we find ourselves actually in the same boat with all around the world, facing similar situations, even if they might be from different communities or different locations. So, yeah, you know, that's, that was a lot, but I wonder if you, you have any kind of reflections on 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 that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, I think this idea of Sarbata Bala, you know, um, really being central to the sick way of life, right? Like we're we're working for equality and justice, not just for ourselves, but but for all people. Um, and and obviously the central idea of <clears throat> of Seva in our community. Um, I think we have to we need a little bit of a paradigm shift for many in our community that that doesn't mean just serving longer at the Gurdwara. Um, and uh, that that means uh, get, getting a little out of our bubble, right? And and taking this real obligation, I think, you know, I, I think one of the coolest things about Sikhi is not only that there's this ideology of equality and justice kind of baked into uh, Sikh philosophy, but actually a, a spiritual obligation to act on it, right? Um, yeah. So we don't yeah. just believe in it, like we're actually supposed to do something about it, right? Yeah. Um, and that and that is as legitimate a form of prayer and worship of the divine as uh, as doing pot, you know, or doing mm -hmm. kirtan, right? Um, and both both elements are are needed, right? And and required actually of a of a sick. At least that that's yeah. my understanding of part of what it means to be a sick. Yeah. And so that's essentially the the call to action is already there, right? Like it's in it's in our history, it's in our philosophy, it's in our gurbani, um, and uh, I, I I think uh, I think it, it makes all the sense in the world and is so in line with Sikh values to to be uh, to be dismantling systems uh, of of 
injustice and equality and exploitation that are affecting uh, other communities uh, who are who are not sick, right? And there's no shortage yeah. of examples of that. And I, and I don't want to say that, I mean, I, I don't want to imply that there's not already pretty incredible movements of, uh, of small and larger groups of six kind of engaging in, 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 in really awesome stuff, right? Like the Khalsa aid, you know, feeding, feeding lunger to Syrian refugees. You know, we hear about these examples on a regular basis, which are, which are super inspiring. Um, I think what we hear a little bit less of is, um, going from direct service, which I think is super important and needs to happen to also, uh, organizing and base building and, and really working to, to dismantle oppressive systems. Right. Um, and I, I think there's a fair amount of like, so we want to call it sort of a more, I don't want to say one is more political than the other, but uh, sort of resistance in in the sense of uh, sort of working to tear down oppressive systems, recreate more just systems, um, you know, challenge oppressive policies. Like on that realm, I think there's large movements of six working to do those things when they relate directly to the sick community, right? When they relate directly to impunity uh, of, uh, you know, around 84 and all the aftermath. Um, there's plenty of movement uh, and activism around that, which is great, you know, which is really great. There's yeah. plenty of uh, activism and movement uh, as far as sort of like a resistance politics, if we want to call it that, when it relates to Khalistan. Um, right. But there's much less, I'd say, when it comes to, you know, uh, U.S. drone strikes uh, all over the Middle East and North Africa or, right. you know, um, or the the Muslim ban, right? Or right. you know any number of other issues, right? Or like you know uh, transphobia and you know policies that are uh, really coming down hard on trans and gender nonconforming people, or or lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, right? Um, uh, or the the Me Too movement, right? And the oppression of of women and the 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 sort of never ending, seemingly never ending, uh, sort of. Uh, cycle of sexual harassment and sexual assault that seems to happen with the impunity uh, in so many communities, including our community. And it's been really exciting and inspiring to see uh, particularly some cores uh, really uh, getting their voices out there around uh, exposing some of the sexual harassment and assault that exists in the sick community. Um, And I I think we need to see more of it. Uh, But I, I think it's, for me, the time has really come for Khalistan in 84 to not be the only issues that that sort of define what it means to be a sick activist, right? Yeah. Like, it's not or, just about us. It's not just about us. Well, right. And, and, and I think it's to... Um, I think that when sometimes people hear that, they go, well, you're that's erasure or that's like, you know, we this is these are fundamental issues that have not been dealt with. But I, I mean, and I don't want to assume what you what you mean, but the way I view these things is is like like you said it's super good and important that these movements exist i think that what i if i could if i would be able to contribute anything to those movements it's to say well let's examine the structures that um you know that brought these about these situations about um, and starting to see things in a structural light instead of a sort of an idealist or kind of one community versus another um, uh, light, because then it, it starts to demystify the good guys and the bad guys in a certain sense. Like you're kind of having what, what a lot of like 
you know, obviously the central government of India is a is a monolithic. I mean, it's a big it's a big thing. It's it is a big structure, but it it exists in an even broader structure of you know, it's a it's kind of it's a neoliberal project. It's it's right wing nationalism, and so when you start to understand those concepts and how actually those are things that are permeating the whole world um, that you can start to look at solutions and maybe in a different way so it's not that I, I don't and I don't assume that you are implying this but I, you know that that those um, movements in any way should be abandoned but 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 I guess you know my my perspective would be like that we can evolve the analysis that is you know, around those movements and, and expand and, and, and just start to conceive of things in a different way. That would be my my kind of prayer. I something else that you said before is is about um Langar and direct service. And um you know I think what's it's again it's like, you know, if you view Langar exclusively as sort of like a religious practice or a symbolic thing about, you know, um and, you know, I mean, in, in the diaspora, we do have this kind of phenomenon where you just have the Gurdwari and people kind of eating after Divan or, or you know, whatever in the Langar Hall. And it's just all kind of six, all part of the same community. And it's just sort of a part. And, you know, this is not to disparage anything. I mean, these are, these are our traditions and our institutions and, and everything. Um, and, and so it's like I hate I do never want to sound like I'm some know-it-all who's sniping or whatever like that. It's just like you know, what would be beautiful to see is like, if rather than the, just the sort of the, I guess the, 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 you know, again, not to disparage it, but maybe the ritualistic aspect of just sort of getting together and having lunga that's prepared and, you know, by the community and sitting together on the floor is beautiful. Um, but I think that in a certain way, if you kind of, if you look at Sikh history, like, the Lunga that Guru Nanak built at uh, Kartarpur um, was a communal kitchen where everybody, where, you know, people grew food together in that region and they would supply the kitchen together and they would work together. And so if you, and it's like, if you believe that Sikhi has been a revolutionary thing from its inception, which I think that Guru Nanak absolutely was, was revolutionary, um, what they were building was was not just some like religious practice to come to, to do every Sunday. It was maybe a new conception of how to, you know, share food and resources and how to feed people and how to create, you know, institutions that promote equality and justice. And, you know, and, and I think that sometimes we look at the sort of the specifics and we lose the um, motivation, like the kind of the underlying root motivation. And so if only we could, yeah, like you, you know, like you said, be dealing with the question of, well, not only should we be feeding people food, but why are people hungry in the first place? Right? Like, what is this allocation of, you know, so. Exactly. And I think, and yeah, and the feeding people food is still really important. Right. And 100%. I mean, I think a more contemporary example that I draw a lot of inspiration from is the Black Panther Party. Right. Like they, yeah. they understood that that connection of direct service and 
uh, and sort of a radical political agenda, right? Organizing yeah. and base building uh, to to fundamentally change society. But the feeding the you know the the free lunch program was like a or free breakfast program. Sorry, was was a key was a key part of that, right? Both yeah. as an organizing tool, but also as a fundamental need in the community, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and those things those things go hand in hand. And again, I think our community is so well positioned to to make that connection. And and many people are right. And again, like I don't I don't want to. I share share your your sentiment around like not trying to be up on a high horse like uh, waving not, my yeah. finger at uh, at people who I think are less politically evolved. That's not where I'm coming from at all. But uh, it's like they're and I'm, honestly, I am I am hopeful. Like what I what yeah. I see what I see in our community, where I see the tide moving uh, with the younger generation, which. Uh, I have mixed feelings that I certainly am not a part of that younger generation anymore. Um, it's it's exciting to me, you know. I I in all of my twenties and the first half of my thirties. Uh, I'm in the second half of my thirties, the very last lap of my thirties right now. And like in all my twenties, the first half of my thirties, I don't think I ever saw a sick person at a Palestine rally. And I yeah. went to many a Palestine rallies, and may, you know that that's that's based on very uh, you know just outward appearances, obvious sure. uh, obvious people who are sick. So I see a Cardo or I see a the star or whatever, right? Um, I don't I had never experienced that before, and that's not the case anymore. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, there's it's still not like masses of us, but the, I feel like I I see more and more of us at at in at Palestine solidarity events. And, and mobilizations. I see more and more of us at uh, LGBT uh, and queer positive and queer liberation kind of events, rallies, solidarity events, right? Um, and and that, is, that is very exciting. Um, I, I, did not see, I did not see that growing up. When I was being politicized, I felt very alone, though that felt very out of sync because what I was learning about Sikhi and what I understood about Sikhi is like, of course, we're activists. Like, of of right. course, I should be uh, at this at this uh, at this like take back the night event or whatever whatever event that I was at that uh, you know wasn't directly related to my own oppression, but was a really important issue that I that I felt that I needed to act on. Like, of course, we should be there as six, and I I, I think more and more six uh, see that in our interacting. I think. I think so too, and. And um, it's, it is a beautiful thing to see. And, and yeah, I absolutely. Yes, it's not about uh, it's not about some sort of a preachy um, high horse thing. It's about, hey, you know, we're these are these are the worlds that we're um, operating in and and the experiences that we have and, and just, you know, sharing a perspective that I think maybe a lot of uh, six and especially young six might not be might not be seeing examples of of you know of um observant you know six with their outward identity um participating in in these kinds of grassroots um movements and and really um authentically uh connecting that to our our spiritual practice and tradition i you know i can't say i mean how beautiful would it be if if um in, in that good sense that our Gurdwaras were radicalized and that we were, you know, you know, as part of our, you know, coming together, we're thinking about these bigger questions and, and mobilizing our resources to, to, uh, you know, address those things. And I, and I think that, like you said, there is, there is a lot of good work happening around these things. I think, you know, you mentioned the Lunger Hall, which was um, started by Nandeep Singh, who's the, um, 
director of Jakara, which is a fantastic organization out in California. And, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, good, good, good work happening now, but yeah, I mean, how I, I, I definitely look forward to the day when, you know, um, hopefully, you know, many, many Sikhs are congregating all around, you know, from all around the country or whatever to, to develop, you know, political strategies and, and organizing strategies and, um, you know, for, for liberation. Um, and uh, yeah, how cool would that be? Absolutely. Wow. And I mean, and, and there's so, there's so much precedent for it already, right? Like even here on this continent, right? With the, the founding of the Gother party and the, yeah. you know, the at the Stockton Gurdwara, right? Um, that was, that was a organizing hub for overthrowing British imperialism, right? In the Stockton Gurdwara. And that, that to me is very inspiring. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I think, I think that that's a good place uh, maybe to, to end. And um, what a lovely conversation. It's so inspiring. It's really, really nice to, to speak to you. And thanks so much for, for sharing your history and your, um, you know, your perspective um, with, with, uh, with us on the show. And, um, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you too. was Sonny Singh. You can find him on Twitter at IamSonnySingh or on SonnySingh.com. His new single, Mitter Pya Renu, releases August 18th on all platforms. The video for it will premiere August 20th on Rolling Stone India. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode of The One Which Happened.